the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground for three. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, uh, accompanied today by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. My son, Michael. Hello, everyone. For those of you who haven't heard the show before, listen, welcome. Glad you joined us. And the show is in a, in a couple of parts. The first part of the show, we talked about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. You know, I probably should mention this a little bit more because every once in a while somebody calls me and says, well, are you a lawyer? Yeah, I am a lawyer. I've been a lawyer for over 40 years now. But- in any event, let's start on the estate planning. Beth, what estate planning question do we have? Okay. Um, this is from Joe. My mother-in-law has lived with my husband and me. And this is a, the Joe is Joanne. It's a girl, not to confuse anybody. But my mother-in-law has lived with my husband and me for seven years. She's disabled. She's responsible for her expenses, but she pays nothing to live with us. She wants to apply for Medicaid. The Medicaid form asks for household income. Should we answer the questions on the form based only on the income that she gets from disability? Or is her eligibility actually based off what we make? Yeah, basically her eligibility is just based on what she makes. Now, here's one of the things we should keep in mind. If her income is over what we call the Medicaid limit, which is really only about $900 a month, you can charge her rent or room and board or whatever to take away her income. Let's say her income is $2,000 a month, Social Security, disability, whatever it is. Well, in theory, she makes $1,100 too much to be eligible for home care Medicaid, community Medicaid. But what you can do in this case, in your example, is charge her about $1,100 a month rent, room and board or whatever. And then, then she will be eligible for home care Medicaid. And I just want to warn everybody, the rules on home care Medicaid are changing. They may change April 1st. They may change July 1st. There are emails that are going back and forth that they may not be able to implement the changes that are technically due on April 1st. But we can't necessarily, you know, count that. Now, which means if if you have a relative and you want to apply for home care Medicaid, do it now. Because once the new system comes into play, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. And two, if you made a $20,000 gift, you know, a short while ago with Medicaid, home care Medicaid, that might cause a two-month penalty. If you put your application in before March 31st, in other words, to be effective April 1st, then there's no look-back period if you put your application in before April 1st, which is only a couple of weeks away. So now is not the time to procrastinate as far as home care Medicaid is. And listen, on all the forms, be careful about them. Yes, you always tell the truth. You never lie, but you don't volunteer everything. And your mother is single or your mother-in-law is single, and there's no obligation for a son or daughter-in-law to support their mother. So, again, you can charge her rent. We can do different things. And, you know, get the right advice. And if you wanted to give us a call at Connors & Sullivan, give us a call at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. And if you got a relative that's thinking about applying for home care Medicaid, do it soon. Let's do it before March 31st if we can. If we can't, we'll figure out the best plan we can do, 
you know, in the meanwhile. And Michael, where if somebody has an email question for us, where do they email us? If you want to reach us with an email question, which will either be answered here on air or we may get back to you if it's a private matter um, via email, then you can reach us at askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Connors, of course, spelled C-O-N-N-O-R-S. That's askmikeconnors at gmail.com. All right. And also, you know, like some people say, when are you going to do a seminar again? And, of course, I really don't know because of the situation. Hopefully the vaccines will start working and we'll be close to normal in a couple of months. But right now, where can you view, um, I guess, a digital copy of our seminar? Yeah, well, we recently, you know, last year we taped a seminar for for the sake of our listeners and for our clients in general and anyone who's interested, honestly, um, because the factor of the matter is we still don't know when we're going to be able to hold an in-person seminar. And so if you want to watch that seminar, it's about, you know, it's a bit more than an hour long, and it's we try to pack in as much information as possible. Just search Connors and Sullivan Video Seminar at YouTube.com. That's go to YouTube.com and search Connors and Sullivan Video Seminar. You should see Dad right there as the first result, and click on it, you know, learn as much as you can. And after that, if you want to come in for a free consultation, give us a call at 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. All right. Now, the the second part of the show, we talk about politics, history, religion, and, you know, it's Black History Month, so we're going to focus on black history. And rather than do somebody new, I, I decided to pull out two of our, our, over the years, two of our favorite guests, Professor Roger McGrath from UCLA and Ed Bars. Ed, unfortunately, was deceased, you know, a couple of months ago at the age of 97, but Ed used to have a, a photographic memory. And he used to memorize all the battlefield reports of the Civil War. But we're, we're not talking about the Civil War too much. He's touching upon it a little bit. But he's going to be talking about the, the Buffalo Soldiers out west as part of, you know, black history. And Roger McGrath is going to be talking about the legendary African-American Deputy Marshal Bass Reeves, a truly, you know, legendary figure. And I've always been impressed by his life and his accomplishments. So and, and Roger McGrath, again, is one of our favorite guests over the years, a historian. Back when they used to do shows on the History Channel talking about history, he was on all the time. Right now, I don't think you see him on TV very much, but you do see him around and he writes some interesting articles and blogs and things like that. And he did write an interesting article about reparations a few months back. And if you can track it down on YouTube or some blog or whatever, I recommend you do it because he's got a little bit of a sense of humor. And he takes it part of the way, you know, some of some of us Irish maybe are entitled to reparations because of the work we had to do in the South pre-Civil War. Now, um, again, if you have any questions, again, you have any email questions, Michael, where do they send it to? If you have any email questions, if you have any questions for the show, email us at askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Connors, of course, spelled C-O-N-N-O-R-S. Askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Okay, so we're going to go into our Black History Month. We're going to be talking about Bass Reeves, African Marshal from post-Civil War, Roger McGrath. We're going to talk about the Buffalo Soldiers with Ed Bars. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. 
Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash Fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank. NMLS number 403503. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Uh, you know, years ago, I used to love the History Channel. And one of the guys I always loved seeing or Arts Entertainment Network was Roger McGrath because he knew everything about the Old West. And we invited him on the show today to talk about Bass Reeves, you know, a, a forgotten hero of the Old West. How are you doing today, Mr. McGrath? Well, I'm doing fine, Mike, and thanks. Uh, thank you for having me on your show. Okay, so it's Black History Month. Bass Reeves, forgotten hero. Who was he? Yeah, Bass Reeves is one of the good guys, and uh, I sure wish we um, had some of these uh, heroes more in the public mind uh, today. He was a lawman who served for 32 years um, out of Fort Smith, Arkansas, and uh, into Indian Territory. Uh, the longest serving of any U.S. deputy marshal out of the uh, hanging judge uh, Isaac Parker's uh, courtroom there in Fort Smith, Arkansas. Uh, he made hundreds of uh, arrests, um, shot to death uh, four men in the line of of duty, uh, had his, his hat shot off his own head at, at one time and his belt buckle shot off at another time, so narrow escapes with uh, death, uh, served honorably for uh, all these years. Um, and actually, he's, he's gained quite a bit of rec- recognition in historical circles. And there's actually a statue of him, a bronze statue, on horseback uh, at the U.S. Uh, Marshals uh, Museum in Fort Smith, Arkansas. Um, but uh, unfortunately, uh, hasn't uh, gained a lot of traction, especially in black culture in America today. Now, how did going back in history, how did an African-American become a U.S. Marshal back in those days? Well, uh, well, actually, uh, rather easily. Um, during, he, he ran away from his uh, master, uh, who was uh, a friend. Uh, during the Civil War, he's kind of a personal valet to uh, uh, to his master, who was a son of a, uh, the owner of a, a large uh, large farm, and uh, he had more or less inherited uh, Bass Reeves as a servant. And uh, this uh, this son of the, uh, the large farm owner went off into the Civil War, and he took Bass Reeves with him. And evidently there was a dispute over a card game and Bass Reeves got in some trouble and he ran off. And he ran off nearby, right into Indian Territory. And this is during the Civil War, so uh, nobody bothered with him much there. And he, and he lived with uh, uh, in, in and among uh, the five civilized tribes, the Cherokee, Creeks, Choctaw, Chickasaw, and Seminole, in uh, what would today be southeastern Oklahoma. Indian Territory, and he learned uh, the Muscogean language of four of those tribes and the Iroquois language of the Cherokee. So by the time the Civil War 
ended. He was very familiar, intimately familiar with Indian territory and also the languages uh, spoken there. Uh, and he, he returned uh, to Arkansas after the Civil War uh, and settled on a farm, uh, got married and started raising a large family. Well, when the feds began to try to organize uh, this area west of Arkansas, um, they, they appointed Isaac uh, Parker as the judge of this tremendous territory. It's about 75,000 square miles, kind of no man's land. Um, and it was just a, a territory, uh, this Oklahoma territory, Indian territory. Uh, and they had to hire uh, deputy marshals. And the, the marshal was uh, a James uh, Fleming uh, Fagan, who had served as, uh, from Arkansas, had served as a, a, ultimately as a major general in the Confederate uh, cavalry, a uh, prominent uh, general. And he went about hiring these uh, deputies. Well, one of them, who had already gained a reputation because he had been hired privately at different times as a guide and a scout into Indian Territory by some bounty hunter or somebody uh, was Bass Reeves and uh, uh, Marshal Fagan made him one of his first hires uh, who could be better than somebody that was not only uh, familiar with the territory but spoke the uh, languages in there and so uh, one of the first hires there was uh, Bass Reeves now there may have been some other blacks hired at the same time, or about the same time. Uh, we like to say Bass Reeves was the, the first black U.S. Deputy Marshal west of the Mississippi. But he may be a, among a few. Um, and there there seems to have been no bias or discrimination or anything against these uh, Deputy U.S. Marshals because they list all the Deputy Marshals and they don't identify them by race. So you have to know something else about them to identify, oh, he was white, he was white, he was black. Um, and and Fagan hired uh, uh, Bass Reeves. Uh, and so it surprised, seems surprising to people today, but not in those days, and especially not for somebody like Bass Reeves, who spoke the languages and uh, of the Indian tribes in Indian territory and was had lived there for four or five years during the Civil War. Now, what, what are some of his famous exploits? What what story or two can you tell the audience that would represent his character in, in, in history? Well, I, I, I think one of the best. Um, and you have to remember, when they went out, they didn't go out uh, alone on on uh, horseback. They went out certainly on horseback, but there was also um, a cook uh, driving a wagon and an assistant and maybe an Indian scout that went with them Indian, into Indian territory. Uh, so that's how he normally went out, which is slightly different image than somebody would have. But remember, most of the time he was bringing in uh, people who were trafficking in liquor. And, the, and these may be uh, whites or Indians, uh, but that was prohibited. Uh, but that was one of the, the major crimes, uh, recurrent crimes in Indian territory. And uh, also horse theft and cattle theft, because they'd steal from uh, Texas ranches and and drive the cattle of the horses into Indian territory, kind of a no man's land. So he would often have handcuffed or shackled uh, criminals stacked in the wagons and driving them back. But once he, he he sat down at some point of operation in Indian territory, he would often don a disguise. And one time there were, there were two criminals known to be holed up in the in their mother's cabin in the Indian territory there. And he thought, well, the only way I can approach without a fight, because these were hardened uh, gunmen, uh, criminals and gunmen, uh, he disguised himself as uh, a farmhand, uh, dressed uh, shabbily, and uh, and he shuffled up to the the cabin and and asked for work. And as the story goes, he uh, they they didn't think twice about it because of his dress, because of his manner, um, and he had been a 
a farmer himself, and so uh, he knew everything about the the operation of this farm. He fit right in, and he actually spent the night there. And as the story goes, during the night he, he handcuffed uh, both of these uh, men in their sleep, um, and in the uh, the morning his assistants in the wagon arrived, and he. And uh, they loaded him aboard, and the and the the mother of these two criminals, uh, and ev- ev- evidently they're rather infamous in that area. Uh, and she was a tough old gal, and she ran after the wagon, uh, hurling all sorts of uh, epithets at at Bass Reeves for miles. <laughs> and uh, and evidently these men had been operating for years, and nobody else had been able to get close to them. Now, let me ask you something. You know, like, okay, we're here. We've seen movies with Wild Bill Hickok in it. We've seen movies about Wyatt Earp. Why hasn't there been, maybe I'm missing it, but why hasn't there been a major film about Bass Reeves? Well, there actually has been a uh, film about Bass Reeves okay. in, in, 20, in 2010. Um, not a particularly uh, great movie, uh, but, uh, but yeah, there, there was. And the, the problem, the problem with that is he was operating out in this kind of no man's land of Indian territory. And most of his arrests were for, uh, liquor trafficking and horse or, or cattle theft. So it wasn't a spectacular gunfight that we know him for or a series of gunfights in uh, some of the famous cattle towns or, or mining camps of the Old West. Um, and you, likewise, there's all sorts of his fellow, fellow deputy marshals out there uh, that were heroic Greek lawmen, uh, white counterparts, that you don't know about either. Bill Tillman. Uh, you wouldn't know about him. Historians do, and old western, uh, old west buffs do. Uh, Chris uh, Madston, um, Heck Thomas. Uh, they were known as the Three Guardsmen. They were operating at the same time in the same territory. No movies about them. So I don't think it's because he he was uh, black, but I think it was a circumstance of. Uh, of the area. If he had been in some great gunfight in some town at the time, uh, we probably would long before 2010 have had a, uh, a movie about him. Also, he was illiterate. He didn't read or write, so he wrote nothing about himself. Uh, and some of these ones you know about had the advantage of knowing Bat Masterson. Now, Bat Masterson himself uh, was a, a prominent uh, buffalo hunter and and then uh, lawman and, and gunfighter on the western frontier and he became a journalist in New York City <laughs> so he wrote about all these guys uh, so a Bass Reeves or a Bill Tillman and some others they they didn't have a, a scribe writing about them in in the in the Big Apple at the turn of the century all right so what can you just summarize for the audience the the accomplishments of Bass Reeves and why he should be remembered today? As I said, Bass Reeves is one of the good guys that we should remember. I mean, here he was an honorable lawman serving for 32 years, the longest of anybody out of the famous Isaac Parker, the hanging judge, Fort Smith, Arkansas, and working in that Indian territory. Uh, from 1875 to 1907, um, and making hundreds of arrests, um, including his own son. His own, uh, he had a large family, and one of his sons was Benjamin, or Benny, as, as they called him, who shot to death his wife uh, in some kind of jealous rage. He had uh, accused her of having an affair with somebody, and, and he shot her to death. And uh, nobody else wanted to take in Bass Reeves' son, and Bass Reeves said, no, no, I, I, I'll do it myself. And he took his own son in. His son was tried and convicted and sent off to Fort uh, Leavenworth, where he uh, served about 10 years before he, was, before he was pardoned. But that's the kind of guy Bass Reeves was. The law was the law, and he... he uh, 
he saw to it that it was in, in, enforced uh, equally and evenly. Because remember, he was arresting Indians, whites, and blacks. So um, this this kind of career for and that kind of longevity, making the number of arrests uh, that he did and having close calls with death, uh, certainly seems <laughs> some figure that we should honor in American history. Professor McGrath, thank you for bringing history to life. Thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Okay, thank you very much, Mike. It was my pleasure. Take care. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. I have children. How can I protect them if something happens Will my to assets be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How will it affect the ones still here? Who will help us take care of Grandma? These questions can be answered by calling 718-238-6500 for a free consultation from Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, providing dedicated, caring, and highly responsive legal services. They're focused on issues that matter to you, protection of your family, preservation of your assets, and respect of your wishes with dignity. That's all I want from a lawyer, making it easier for my children. Call 718-238-6500. Get a free consultation. Connors & Sullivan's clients don't get lost in the cracks. They have dedicated attorneys who know their clients and the issues that matter most to them. Connors and Sullivan's estate planning, elder law, and probate attorneys work closely with every client. Don't leave behind problems for your family. Call 718-238-6500 and get a free consultation today. Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. Thanks again to Professor McGrath. Uh, next, we're going to be talking to Ed Bars. And of course, Ed Bars died a couple of months ago at the age of 97. He was truly a remarkable, you know, treasure. And we 90% of the time we did talk about the Civil War with Ed because that's he was National uh, Parks historian for many years. He retired uh, from the Parks Department and he did Civil War tours until he was about 96. But his interests were global. Right. Like we, we also talked about the battle in New Orleans. And in the Battle of New Orleans, it took him 40 minutes to describe a battle that basically was only 20 minutes. <laughs> and you might say, He's well, how, how, how could that happen? Because he had to explain to us what was happening on the left front, what was happening on the right front, and what was happening in the middle. So it took 13 minutes to describe <laughs> each one of the fronts, and the battle lasted 20 minutes, but Ed Bars, you know, described it in, in 40. So we're going to take a short break. Listen. You know, Ed Bars was getting old when we did this interview, but enjoy him. He really was a, a true national treasure. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Right now, we have our favorite guest on the show, national treasure Ed Bars, noted historian. Ed, how are you doing today? Very good. I'm looking for, eagerly forward on the subject we're going to discuss today. Okay, so we decided because of Black History Month, we would talk about the Buffalo Soldiers. Who yes. were they? Now, Buffalo Soldiers, now, in the uh, during the Civil War, there had been, uh, uh, the Army is uh, segregated. At the beginning of the Civil War, there are no black units in the United States Army. There had been black units in the Continental Army. Uh, there had been black units uh, in the War of 1812, but there had been no black units in the United States Armed Forces or the Militia Forces until the Civil War. In the Civil War, they will organize black troops, 
And uh, they will be either organized by certain of the states or uh, the United States government, and they'll be known generally as U.S. colored troops. The officers are all white. Uh, the enlisted men are all black, except in t t three regiments that were raised in Louisiana, which had a tradition of blacks in the militia, and they had free men uh, in the New Orleans militia. They were free men of color who had fought with Jackson at the Battle of Chalmette. Now, the Confederate, they had volunteered their service to the Confederate government, the state of Louisiana, but the Confederate government would not accept them. And there were three regiments of Native Guards of Louisiana that do have white officers, but everything else will be black uh, will be uh, uh, African-Americans. So, and, uh, and approximately 180,000 blacks served in the Union Armed Services during the Civil War, of whom about uh, 32,000 uh, lost their lives, either from combat or from disease. Now, with the war over, slavery uh, abolished, and the United States is going to cut back their military strength. They decide in 1866 that the United States Army will consist of about, of, uh, of about 51,000 men. Now, before the war, the United States Army had numbered about uh, 21,000 officers and men all lily white before the war uh, in the United States Army. Uh, now they're going to put blacks in the United States Army, and they're going to, among the, they're going to organize two black cavalry regiments. These will become the, the 9th and 10th U.S. Cavalry. The enlisted men will all be black, the officers will be white. They will also, at this time, organize four infantry regiments, the, the 38, 39th, 40th, and 41st. Again, under the same limitations. They must, all officers must be white. All enlisted men will be black. The blacks will be paid. Will be paid thirteen dollars for privates, and then it'll be if they're sergeants or something up, it'll be graded upward. They will be required to enlist for five years. Now the reg the regiments that will become known as Buffalo Soldiers will be the two cavalry regiments. So I will focus mainly on them. The two, the four infantry regiments, when we shrink the army, the army in 1869, the United States Army will be cut in half to roughly 24,000 people. Of them, uh, the two, they'll have still the two black cavalry regiments. Uh, the, who will be the Buffalo Soldiers, that will still remain the 9th and 10th. They'll reduce the number of black infantry regiments from 4 to 2. The, uh, the uh, 38th, 39th, 40th, and 41st will become the 25th, excuse me, the 24th and 25th Infantry Regiment. The Cavalry Regiments will be authorized 12 companies. The Infantry Regiments, 10 companies. So a lot of the white officers of the Civil War, since there's a big cutback, uh, particularly do not want to uh, command uh, the black uh, uh, regiments. But they're going to find several men who are willing. Now, the, they're going to organize the uh, two cavalry regiments, the, uh, the, the 10th, will be organized at Fort Leavenworth. Uh, it will be commanded by Benjamin Gerson. We talked about Benjamin Gerson uh, when we were talking about 
the cavalry during the Vicksburg campaign. Uh, he's the man that was a former music teacher and went on that famous raid uh, at the time of Grant's uh, expedition. Uh, he hated horses because he'd been kicked in the face when he was 14 years old and badly uh, uh, scarred. Besides being uh, proving himself a good officer, uh, he was all he. His profession, until he entered the military, was as a musician. Now, commanding the night, they will be. They, he will command the tenth cavalry. The ninth cavalry will be commanded by Edward Hatch, a native of a native of 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 of, 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 of Maine, but a resident of Iowa. Undoubtedly, Grant picks these two men to command the two black cavalry regiments uh, because he would be familiar with them, particularly from the Vicksburg campaign. Grierson on his raid south uh, from uh, LaGrange, uh, 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 Tennessee, to Baton Rouge during the Vicksburg campaign. And one of his subordinates uh, in the uh, at that time who was with Grierson for part of the raid would be Edward Hatch, who was colonel at that time of the third 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 Iowa regiment. So they're going to recruit, and they're going to take them about nine months before they'll get their assignments. Then the uh, the tenth uh, the tenth uh, the tenth regiment will be ordered to move from Fort Leavenworth, uh, where there's some, consider, the commanding officer at Fort Leavenworth is very uh, unhappy with black officers, so regiments under his command, and they are moved to Fort Riley, Kansas, and they will soon end up what will become known as Fort Sill in the Oklahoma Territory. They, we will discuss them with the uh, how they come to be known as uh, Buffalo Soldiers. Now, the regiment that was organized in the New Orleans area uh, will be organized, well, when they're ordered to duty, they will be sent in to the Department of Texas. Now, how do they get their name of, 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 of Buffalo Soldiers? Well, uh, uh, there is a, a private, Private Randall of the and the Tenth Cavalry goes out hunting with two civilians. They are attacked by Cheyenne Indians. The two civilians are killed, and uh, uh, Randall uh, will uh, fight. Will will fight the Indians off. Uh, when he's finally rescued, uh, he will have uh, killed uh, uh, ten uh, Cheyennes. Uh, be wounded, uh, shot once, several ants uh, uh, thrust. And the Cheyennes are very impressed by him. They notice he had, they, they notice that he and the other blacks have cakey hair, which white men do, whites do not, Caucasians do not. And that reminds the Indians who have great feeling, uh, and it's almost a sacred animal with them, the buffalo. And he, he, uh, they notice the buffalo, and he fought uh, so bravely uh, that uh, the Indians also, the Plains Indians, are impressed with the courage of buffalo. So they will uh, refer, uh, they will be the first people to refer to as buffalo soldiers. The ninth will will uh, who have gone to Texas will soon also become known as Buffalo Soldiers. So the only uh, people that are known as Buffalo Soldiers are the two cavalry regiments. Some people would like to make out that the four infantry regiments, which after fifty uh, after ninety after. 1869 are reduced to uh, 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 are reduced to two. They are technically not 
the Buffalo Soldiers. They're very, they're equally brave, but the, since the other ones ride horses, they're they're the ones that originally the Indians referred to as Buffalo Soldiers, and the soldiers uh, uh, take that as an honor. The Black Soldiers, and that will distinct, uh, that will make them uh, as. A, Press writes about them, and the various painters, like uh, artists like Remington, uh, do military art. They're going to be very popular subjects with him. With them, so that is the the background. That, uh, now, what, uh, do you want me to go further with what they do? Oh yeah, sure. I mean, that's the that's the point. You know what they what they, they achieve. They are, they are very very effective uh, in, in in the playing uh, out uh, in the uh, the uh, the plains area and into the Rocky Mountains. They're uh, very very active and become uh, uh, very uh, ha- ha- get uh, their have a very, very good combat record. Uh, they will uh, uh, be, particularly the the uh, tenth will be active first in uh, uh, what is now the state of Oklahoma, and they are the ones that first garrison, and they do most of the work in, in the construction of, of Fort Sill, where now if you're in the artillery, uh, in the military, whether you're in the Marine Corps or the Army, you always go to Fort Sill uh, for instructions and our artillery. They are they are very active and uh, against uh, the at first uh, the uh, the 10th Cavalry will be very active against uh, the Plains Indians in the. Uh, area of what is in present-day Oklahoma, uh, Nebraska, uh, Wyoming, and uh, up into the part of the country I'm from, uh, in those states uh, where they uh, where they uh, serve and are very, very effective uh, in our, our, our mission of, uh, their mission of, of expediting the, constru- the uh, construction of uh, trans, uh, railroads as they build railroads that are eventually going to uh, cross the continent. Initially, uh, the uh, the 9th Regiment is much more interest uh, is much more active in uh, in in western Texas and into uh, what is the Indian Territory. Uh, this is against particularly against uh, the uh, Kiowa and the uh, uh, Shai, uh, and the Kiowa and the Comanche Indians. So uh, they uh, have a very, uh, they make a good record for themselves. They will, they will also uh, be, uh, they will also be important in supporting the law, uh, the marshals, and other people out there. So there are people that uh, they uh, make a reputation as excellent uh, combat uh, so- soldiers and cavalrymen. Uh, Grierson will remain. Grierson remains with the uh, as colonel of the tenth. Uh, up until a long time, up until the first years, uh, up until the uh, early 1890s. Uh, A number of other officers uh, will command at various times the 9th U.S. Cavalry. And uh, so they, uh, and then with the, uh, with the end of the, uh, with the, uh, the, 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 with the end of the uh, problems with the uh, Plains Indians and the Indians uh, in uh, New Mexico and Arizona, which uh, will uh, uh, be pretty well mastered by the Army by the, 18, uh, by the early 1890s. Uh, the 10th will, uh, will also uh, be active both in, uh, will be then transferred, as well as the 9th, will operate a lot out of Fort, 
Fort uh, Fort Concho in uh, in Texas. Uh, so they now they uh, now they're going to be the most uh, when blacks are appointed to the military academy, which is legal according to the Constitution and law, uh, because of the hazing system. And anti uh, and anti uh, blacks, uh, they have a hard time. One of the most important ones is uh, uh, Lieutenant Flipper because he uh, he undergoes the hazing, the discrimination uh, of the of his fellow cadets at West Point, and will uh, gra- he will graduate from West Point. And he'll be assigned uh, to uh, the uh, uh, 10th U.S. Cavalry. At that time, the 10th U.S. Cavalry is at at Fort Davis. And uh, he uh, will be a a good officer, uh, but then it becomes a cause celeb uh, because uh, the – the quartermaster department tries uh, frames him actually, and then he will uh, be uh, forced to resign and become a symbol of uh, discrimination and become an important figure uh, as uh, as we get into the present time. And uh, in uh, in about twenty five twenty years ago. Uh, they will uh, do an investigation of the charges against them, find uh, they were trumped up, and they will remit his, uh, uh, his, uh, his, uh, his bad conduct discharge uh, from the United States uh, uh, forces, uh, the cavalry. Uh, then they will play a very important role. Again, uh, a man that's heavily associated with him in his early career is John J. Pershing. Now, John J. Pershing is a uh, has a high opinion of the black uh, of the uh, Buffalo Soldiers, and he, uh, uh, since he is more forward-looking at them, uh, he will become known as a black. That's where he got his nickname of Black Jack Pershing. They will be very important uh, in the, uh, particularly the uh, 10th Cavalry will be very important in the uh, Spanish-American War. In in fact, in the attack, uh, in the fight, uh, in the battle uh, on the approaches of Santiago de Cuba, they uh, uh, are very important in uh, facilitating uh, the capture of Kettle Hill, and again showing the discrimination. The other ones uh, attacking Kelly, uh, capturing Kettle Hill, are the first U.S. volunteers led by uh, Theodore Roosevelt. And there's one picture that gets more circulation than the other. They have um, pose. You have they have the Third Infantry White. They have the first uh, 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 cavalry. Uh, First U.S. Volunteer Cavalry, the Rough Riders, and they cropped the picture because they have Roosevelt standing, Theodore standing, and the original picture of it has the uh, the uh, 10th Cavalry on the right of them, but they cropped the picture off to just show uh, the, the uh, just show the Roosevelt in the center and the. Uh, White Cavalry Regiment and the White Infantry Regiment to his right, and they've cropped off the the, uh, 10th Cavalry on the left. I got one last question. Sergeant Rutledge, did you see the movie? Yes. What did you think of it? I thought it was very good. Okay. So at least that's one movie you liked. Yes, and yes. And like uh, the Cavalry Raid, I said, uh, which was a poor, uh, poor, uh, uh, poor, reinterpretation of John Wayne's uh, raid, known as the Cavalry Raid. If I hadn't been courting my wife, I'd have walked out on it because it was so un... It was, they, so they end up being so Hollywoodish that they destroyed a wonderful story. Well, thank you very much for, you know, giving our listeners, uh, you know, bringing history to life. 
Okay, thank you so much. Anytime, just yell. Thank you very much. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. You know, let's thank the memory of Ed Bars for everything he's contributed to American history, you know, over the years. I remember one time we saw him in Vicksburg. What were you about to say about that, Beth? Oh, my goodness. Um, my, so much of my family history is Mississippi and Louisiana um, during the Civil War. And as everyone knows, I had a lot of Unionists down there. And um he shed a little bit of light. There are a lot of mysteries because after the war, you know, families had secrets. And it was a secret that my family had fought for the Union. But he helped try to figure out. We, I know some ancestors were buried with the Union soldiers, some civilians. And he, he, just, he helped to explain to me why it was so difficult to find out the the truth, you know, and was there a Camp Jackson where Confederate prisoners were held? It's very complicated, and he made it so interesting. You know, one of the things he talked about was uh, Colonel Grierson, General Grierson at the end of the war, and he's really one of the truly remarkable men of the Civil War. And, and, you know, that's the thing about the Civil War. You know, it's not just the generals, it's the colonels and the you know, Grierson was a colonel when he led the historic raid uh, depicted in the John Wayne movie, The Horse Soldiers, where he led a thousand men. This is Grierson led a thousand men from LaGrange, Tennessee to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and they only lost three men. And this is right in the middle of the war, 1863. And he's taken his troops from LaGrange, Tennessee to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, through, you know, the heart of the South. And they only lost three, three men going 600 miles through the heart of the Confederacy, being chased by Confederate regiments all the way through. These are citizen soldiers, citizen soldiers. And, of course, Grierson commanded that raid, and he went on to command one of the regiments in the Buffalo Soldiers. Listen, we're running out of time. We'll see you next week at the same time and places. God willing, thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. Thanks so much for joining us. Bye-bye.